So the next speaker is Klaus, who's actually my boss, and I have a microphone here, so it feels a slightly oddly powerful position to be in, but I, I promise not to abuse it. Um, Klaus trained originally in Bonn, and then his psychiatry training was in Aberdeen, and his first academic post was in Edinburgh, but he's been with us in Oxford for about nine years now, and I think he's going to talk about uh, the research that uh, we're involved in the Whitehall cohort. So thank you. Okay, now for something completely different. Well, not completely different, because it's about people getting older. Um, one of the things I started when I arrived here was linking up with the Whitehall II study, and this is not really a study of civil servants as such, but see them as a group of people initially about... Uh, oh, there's the, the forward button's missing. So initially, there were 1,200 people who worked in any of the offices in London associated with government. And the reason for this study was that people wanted to find out uh, what the risk factors for heart attacks were. This was in 85 or so, and uh, you know, those of you with a medical background, you'll be familiar with the Framingham study. You know, where a whole community was followed up and people looked at various potential risk factors to see what predicts mortality, in particular um, heart attacks and similar cardiovascular incidents. So in a way this was trying to replicate this and there would always been this assumption that if you're in middle management that's really the worst place you can be because you're kicked from above but also from below. So work stress is at its absolute maximum. And what Whitehall did really for the first time, and that's where it's important comes from. It showed that the lower down the pecking order you are, the higher is the, the, uh, the various risk factors and the higher the likelihood that you're going to suffer from cardiovascular disease. And the risk factors they identified were those, see, we all know about them now, I mean, you hear about them in the news all the time, but uh, this was you know, identified in Whitehall that was continued into Whitehall too, and the study was uh, extended not only you know, beyond heart disease to cancers, chronic lung disease, other types of diseases, but also depression, suicide, sickness, absence, back pain, and general feelings of ill health. And uh, the general purpose of the study is to take a very detailed inventory of people's um, habits about the general state of health, about their work situations, you know, are they, where are they in the hierarchy, uh, what are their, their social networks, um, what quality does their, their workplace have in terms of potential stress causation. In fact, initially it was called the stress and health study, so it was all about identifying what's generally described as stress and the effect on, on ill health. And from an epidemiologist, epidemiologist's point of view, really the idea was to, to build models, mathematical models, predicting health outcome by all sorts of um, observations that are taken throughout the lifetime. Now, um, the way the study was organized was that it started in 85 with uh, 10,000 odd uh, participants, and they were then followed up every few years we're now at phase 12, but uh, you know, this is just the first 11 phases here. And uh, you can see that their average age obviously you know, goes up 
and in between each of the large uh, inventories, as it were, where they're personally examined, are about five years. And in order to, to cover all important factors, they would um, you know, collect the standard descriptive values, then um, general habits, you know, like alcohol, sleep, diet, smoking, etc. Some uh, health markers, anything from, um, you know, from, from body size, weight, etc. to some uh, biochemical markers, inflammatory markers, blood pressure, etc. Then the social um, environment, the amount of uh, support, the work environment, um, details about employment in particular when they retire and what the activity level is after retirement. Lots of health outcomes which partially would have been linked to other databases like for instance if somebody died they would try to, to track down the death certificate and find the cause of death. And then um, a detailed physical workup with um, a number of uh, physics animations uh, cognitive tests, memory tests, etc. Physical function tests, so people have to walk, they have to breathe into diagnostic apparatus and uh, um, a more detailed psychiatric assessment if they are entered into the Oxford component of the study. So what we did was we got people's agreement to be contacted and uh, the way we did this was just select them randomly from this group. Obviously, if you pick people who volunteer, you get a certain type of people. Maybe they're likely to be better educated, healthier, etc. So we selected them randomly, and then they were contacted at phase 11 and asked, would you be prepared to go to Oxford and take part in this? So we have a list to work for. We phone them up, we screen them. If people have metal bits, they can't, for instance, have an MRI scanner, so we have to exclude a certain number of people. And then we arrange a visit to Oxford. Um, they come, you know, having filled in detailed questionnaires, and we have administrative stuff to do, like consent to investigations and so on. We then have a detailed psychological test, actually looking at various components of uh, mental function, memory, concentration, executive function, etc. We then have a systematic psychiatric interview. At that age, they are on average about 70 now. We're particularly interested in cognitive impairment dementia, but also in depression, because that's even more common than cognitive impairment in that age group. And then they have a detailed uh, MRI scan, which and I'll give you details of what we're actually looking for in a minute plus various tests, we have another walking test, we test, we take blood and saliva for people who agree to this, to test for all sorts of other things, including, you know, the, the bacterial makeup of their um, digestive tract, etc. And then when they finish, they get a little uh, stress ball to, to <laughs> remind them of the, of the experience, which hopefully wasn't too unpleasant. Um, Right, so what we looked at, for example, with the MRI is we looked at the structure of the brain. That's a, a typical MRI scan looking from the front and from the side and from the top. And uh, because we are um, going to process about 800 of these in each modality, you can't do these things by hand, so it's done automatically. In Oxford we have FIMRIB, which is the um, 
uh, Center for fMRI, which is mainly used by experimental psychology and psychiatry, to some extent by neurology. And they have expertise in analysis software that deals with this. So what we can do, for example, is we can extract the brain, discard all the other tissues like bone and skin and so on and so forth. And then within the brain, we can break it up into gray matter and white matter and uh, cerebrospinal fluid. And then we can go further down and identify certain structures, for example, basal ganglia. And all that can be done more or less automatically. So it's done relatively quickly in an objective fashion. And then we find one important structure in the brain is the hippocampus, which is the structure which is at the inner side of the temporal lobes, and that's mainly associated with memory. And uh, that's, for example, the structure that is, tends to shrink in Alzheimer's disease. And uh, if you look at the first, well, I can't remember, this is probably 500 or so, um, you can see that they're normally distributed, so there's a range within people. And then at the left end, towards smaller size hippocampus, there's a little bit of a tail. So there's a subgroup of people who already have shrinkage in the hippocampus. They are selected in the sense that they manage to get to Oxford, they manage to find fimbric within the warren of uh, the um, generative hospital. So most of the pe people who arrive with us are not demented as such, but many of them already have memory impairment, even the ones who've driven to Oxford. And uh, quite a few of them have a reduced size of hippocampus, which uh, you know, we obviously would be interested in and try to relate to their cognitive uh, performance. That's the same on the other side. Then we do some diagnostic scans. Typically, as you get older, you develop uh, sort of changes in the structure of white matter. You can see it here. There's sort of white bits, sometimes called white matter hyperintensities. And uh, they are supposedly related to vascular changes, small vessels getting blocked, you know, microstrokes if you want to. So you don't have to have a stroke, but most people who are in this age group already have these changes, and the degree to which they have these changes uh, may be related to cognitive function, but they're also related, for instance, to depression. They're more common and people become depressed. So we do a number of uh, scans like that. This is a different, this is a T2 star scan. You can see something called a microbleed, so a micro uh, stroke, if you want to, with a blood collection, uh, which can be picked up from this. Then we are looking at so-called diffusion tensor imaging. That's really quite a clever application. I say clever, all MRI is clever in a way, but it's clever because it gives a lot of information and you know, they're processed again to get into normal space. And then we're able to extract a number of bits of information. The top row here, what you can see are the fibers that connect different bits of the gray matter with each other. So these are actually the, the white matter fibers. And uh, the stronger the signal, this, this particular uh, modality is called fractional isotropy. So that is the measure that tells you to what extent water diffusion in the brain is, con is confined to one direction. If you think about, about white matter that consists of the cabling of axons, if you want to, and they're well insulated from each other, like any electrical cabling, you know, if, you, if the insulation breaks down, it doesn't function properly. But that also means that water, if it moves in the system, moves along the direction of the, the, the axons, not across it, 
and the more it is constricted to this one direction, the better the quality of the insulation if you want to. So, you know, FA gives you a measure of how well the white matter is organized structurally to perform its function. And then you can look, this is another example of a modality. This just gives you the total amount of diffusivity and, you know, it's greatest in the ventricles where water can move in all sorts of directions and less so in areas where you have brain tissue. And uh, similarly to the hippocampal size, I already mentioned that white matter changes are quite common. If you look at this measure of white matter integrity, if you want to, you can see it's again a normally distributed curve and there's a tail on the left side. So there's always a subgroup of people who already have abnormalities in this particular measurement. And last but not least, we let people lie in the scan for 10 minutes not doing anything in particular, to keep their eyes open, but they do what you do if you're lying somewhere, not having anything particular to do. So they, they think about things, they remember things, and intriguingly what you find is that if you compare the correlation of different bits of the brain, what we actually measure is blood flow, or to be more accurate, the amount of oxygenation of blood that gives you an idea of which bits of the brain are active. And if you compare different, different parts of the brain in terms of how they fluctuate over those 10 minutes, some of them will be correlated and others won't. If they're correlated, you can assume that they're somehow communicating with each other. Okay? Uh, if they're not correlated, they don't. And if you look at the whole data set, you know, the whole brain, voxel by voxel, picture unit by picture unit, and you follow that up over 10 minutes, and the scans are acquired all the time, you can then identify the networks that are connected with each other and those that are separate. So for example here, you have a network that mainly contains this really the central bit of the occipital cortex. Can you read the writing up here? If you can't read it, what do you think it is? <laughs> Which bit? Yeah, the bit <laughs> right, right at the back, that's where, where your, your primary visual cortex sits. And although they don't watch any film or do anything more active, that bit of the brain already changes in parallel. And that may be, I mean, they usually just look at, some, at a scene or at a, at a surface that doesn't change. Um, but clearly, any imagination would happen in the same area. And for some reason, these bits of the brain already are correlated if there's nothing special to look at. That would be the, the lateral visual cortex that is there to, to process uh, visual information in greater detail, look at directions of movements, look at shapes, etc., and colors. Um, this would be the, the system associated with hearing, but with um, movement. Remember, if you see pictures of this. Uh, this homunculus, you know, this projection of the human body upside down, feet on top, head at the bottom, in the middle of the brain, uh, that's reflected in those two areas here. So this is the sensory motor cortex, which already, although they're lying there still, that nothing is touching them, you know, in spite of this absence of activation, these bits of the brain already are correlated in activity. And similarly, you have areas which are of particular interest to us, which, are, which tend to be activated when nothing else is happening. 
and they tend to move together, so-called default mode networks. Um, they are more active if you depress, so instance ruminations may have something to do with activating those. But they are the, the areas that are more active if somebody is not engaged in a task as opposed to doing a particular uh, uh, task and focusing on, on, on doing that task. And then there are others which are more frontally, which have something to do with executive function and planning, etc. Um, so you can break down the various networks in the brain and you can see which networks are more active and less active depending on you know, risk factors or mental performance or whatever. Okay, so let me just focus on a few questions that one could ask looking at this data set which are relevant. The first three, we have information which goes back, of course, to 85. So which midlife risk factors predict brain changes, you know, after 30 years after the start of the study? How far back can we go to predict changes? Does it matter if, for instance, you know, we, we had a certain type of lifestyle or certain risk factors when we were in the, our 40s? Does it matter what these risk factors were? Uh, in relation to how our brain looks when we're, when we're 70 years old, and how quickly do these changes manifest. Now, this shows you the kind of data we're looking at. So there's neuropsych and imaging data, which is done in Oxford at the end of the study, if you want to. And then we've got data which I showed you before, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years back from the scan. So essentially we can look at uh, those data and see whether we can make sense in, in terms of you know, which ones of those are important in how the, the brain looks when people are in their 70s. And I want to focus on one particular type of risk. It's called the Framingham Stroke Index. Um, you may have heard of Framingham. This is the, the um, town, I think it's in, uh, is it in Massachusetts. It's in New England anyway, and there's a whole, whole town that took part in the study, and based on follow-up and who developed heart attacks and strokes, they managed to put together various risk factors to predict whether you're going to develop <coughs> a stroke. Now, this is something your GP has in front of her or him, you know, when they try to calculate your risk and see whether you should be on a statin, for example. And that takes into account all sorts of factors, age, sex, men are at greater risk, as you would expect, compared to premenopausal women. Uh, and then other things like blood pressure, like being overweight, like um, blood lipids, you know, all those risk factors that we, we know about. So I thought, well, let's look at this, this risk index and see how long its effect lasts and how important it is for what the brain looks like at the moment. Now, if you think about, in theory, what should happen is, if you look at the risk that is closest to the scan, if there's a correlation, that's likely to the biggest. But then if you go back in time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, of course, things will have happened between, between those measurements. So if you me measure the risk at phase 3, 20 years ago, Lots of events have happened, a person must have put on some weight or increased blood pressure or you know, the, the, the risk profile will have changed. So if you look at the correlation, it should be the highest, closest to the scan and then should gradually go down. And I call that time dilution. Does that make sense? 
And then if you want to, this of course could mean that changes happen in all sorts of people and uh, you know that correlation may be as high, uh, lower than that because uh, a subset of people um, have changed in their value, but that reduction could be due to other people changing. So you're not quite sure whether this is actually a change within people or just between different subgroups. So what you can do is you can look, this is the uncorrected correlation at phase 11, and you can check of how much predictive value remains once you correct, for example, for the phase before. So you do a partial correlation or a regression, and because phase, the risk at phase 9 and 11 are very similar, once you've accounted for everything that's predicted at phase 9, there's very little left that the intervening time can add to the risk. So this corrective correlation is quite low. And then the further back in time you get, the more dissimilar the correlations become. And then, uh, you know, at phase 3, you will have had a contribution, uh, quite a substantial contribution, that is made between phase 3 and phase 11. And that will be this one. Does that make halfway sense? I know it's quite difficult to get ahead of that, but you think about those correlations being similar to each other, and you do a partial correlation, you remove whatever variability is there, you basically are left with very little, and then it goes the opposite way, the further back you go. And then if you look at the correlation over time, sometimes you may find something like this. So the further back you go, the less it's, you know, the risk is correlated with how the brain looks. But then there's a sort of falls off and then it goes down a little bit more closely to the, to the actual scan. Any idea where that would be? Is it because the risk factor has an airtime to Exactly, yeah. So these are risk factors. And the, the risk number is essentially the percentage risk of having a stroke in the next 10 years. You can actually you know, calculate it down to that, to that specific meaning. And of course, they don't, they don't have, have a stroke. They have other changes in the brain, which may be more sensitively picked up by the, by the scan. But it takes a while for the risk actually to manifest itself. So you, know, you, you would expect that the closer you get, there may have been you know, the risk is not yet represented in the pattern you, you perceive. OK, that's the theory. That's the practice. So if you look at those, those uh, pictures up here, they essentially show you areas in the brain where the gray matter is correlated with the risk at phase 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11. And just looking at them in particular in the small format, they look very similar, don't they? And in fact, if you take the average correlation across the whole volume, it's sort of more or less at the same level. If anything, those two are a little bit lower than those two, so there's a sort of trend for it to get higher. But by and large, the correlation stays within the same range. And it's a significant correlation. So the higher the risk of developing the stroke at any of those stages, the greater the atrophy in gray matter at age seven, you know, at the, at the time of the Oxford scan. Or if you put this in more drastic terms, the risk you have, the, the premium risk you have when you're um, uh, 50 years old, already significantly predicts the degree of brain atrophy you have when you're 70. Okay? And that stays the same, but of course this is across the whole cohort, you don't know who's contributing to this, so we do this exercise with partial correlation anyway, and we actually find that 
if you correlate, if you correct the, the phase 11 risk again for phase 9, it goes down. Then if you correct it for phase 7, it's higher again. So you get this, this negative slope that I suggested would be part of the time dilution effect. And uh, there are a number of interesting things to note. One is that the risk at phase 11 and phase 9 are sufficiently similar once you correct the phase 11 correlation for the phase 9, you've got nothing left, okay? And then, on the other hand, if you then go back, already from phase 7 onwards, those are the green areas here, um, from phase 7 onwards, um, the, the risk that accumulates from then onwards would be reflected in atrophy in those bits of the brain, okay? And the same is true for the earlier ones. So let's look at that in more detail. These are the same two lines. So the top one is the, um, um, the correlation of the risk 20 years ago with the brain scan now and 15, 10, 5 years ago and immediately beforehand. And uh, this is the risk from the most recent phase corrected for phase 9, so there's nothing there. But then 10 years ago, between 10 years and the present, uh, the additional risk, the risk that accumulates, is particularly found in these areas. Now these areas here, any suggestion what that is? Those two areas at the inside of the temporal lobes? Hippocampus. right. So the changes, the more recent changes occur in hippocampus, but then if you look at the, the top part of the brain, you know, frontal, parietal cortex, you can see that there are correlations all throughout the, the phases. And in fact, even if you correct for the phase 3 risk, you remove the phase 11 risk. In other words, the um, risk of having atrophy in those bits of the brain is already mainly determined 20 years before the scan. Okay? So you can start teasing apart the bits of the brain um, that are responding to the risk and what their dynamic is in terms of time. This is a similar um, plot looking at white matter. You can essentially reduce the, the white matter to so-called white matter skeletons. <coughs> and the skeletons essentially are just the, the uh, representation of the main tracts. And uh, in the top row again, you have the risk at phase 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11, correlated with fractional isotropy, that is the quality of white matter tracts. In other words, the greater the risk, the poorer the quality of these white matter tracts in, you know, from those phases. And interestingly, the risk at phase 3 doesn't seem to have any effect at all. Things have happened in between. So, um, the actual risk pattern in phase three is not correlated with the brain 20 years afterwards. <coughs> About 50 years, it starts having an impact and so on. And if you go the other way around, if you go back from phase 11 and correct for phase nine, rather than like in the previous case where you have nothing left, actually between phase nine and 11 in those five years, they are already, the changes already contribute to white matter uh, deterioration in those areas here. And then if you go back, it becomes more and more. So the short summary of that is 
We looked at three different types of tissue, if you want to. There was white matter, and there were two areas of gray matter. Gray matter, this would have been the upper part of the brain, and this would have been the hippocampus. And it seems that for hippocampus, the important areas are the most recent ones, from phase nine onwards. For the gray matter, you know, in other parts, if you want to, in neocortical areas, the important phases are from right at the beginning to phase nine, and not so much there. And white matter, um, the important uh, effects start at phase five and then go right through. And if you want to, this reflects the plasticity of these various tissues. Um, we know that white matter is pretty malleable. You know that the white matter is uh, um, dependent on so-called glia cells, which are not nerve cells. They can grow and regrow. They can form scars if you want to. But they can also adjust the wiring of the brain. That's part of the plasticity that happens in the brain. You know, bits of the brain stop functioning. The white matter connection can switch over and can go to a different area, and the brain can start compensating. So the white matter is uh, uh, pretty variable and plastic. So the um, you know the, it starts what happened 20 years ago, but it is not recognizable again now. But the other extreme is gray matter. Gray matter cells seem to be fairly static, so already the risk here is uh, um, recognizable or is determined is determining the pattern of gray matter at, at follow-up. An extreme example for this was a recent study which came from uh, the Lodian cohort, where people were able to follow up a group of um, now 70-year-olds who had an intelligence test when they were 11. Okay. And they found that the IQ distribution at age 11 was correlated with certain gray matter structures at age 70. So that's the extreme of how, um, how stable gray matter patterns can be. So it allows us to, to identify areas of different risk and, and the difference between hippocampus and uh, neocortex. Any suggestion why that should be the case? Why well, the hippocampus should be much more plastic than the other cortex? It's the one part of the brain where we know that continuously new brain cells are generated. So the plasticity of the hippocampus is actually one of the highest in the brain. If you, learn, if you, if you enter a, a London taxi driver course and you have an MRI at the beginning at the end, at the end the hippocampus is much bigger. You know, that's over a few months. So this, is, this in a way reflects the, the, the fact that hippocampus is one bit of the brain that's most plastic. Okay, I haven't got a little time. Then it's good. Okay, and then we can go one step further. Um, we can look at uh, how the performance in various tasks is related to brain structures. This is how it looks uh, before it's all tidied up. These are all the various risks at phase three, five, seven, nine, and they're all correlated with each other. This is the hippocampus, because I'm interested in the hippocampus, because that's changed in dementia, also to some extent in depression. And this is one of the tests that is thought to depend on hippocampal function. This is, the, um, this is a verbal learning test. So in, in essentially, it um, consists of 12 words, which are sort of fairly random. 
um, but not connected in any sort of logical sense. So the idea, at least theoretical, theoretically, is that you have to learn those 12 words. So they're read to you, you have to repeat them. They're read to you again, you have to repeat them again and for a third time. So in a way, it's a verbal learning test in that you're giving this word list to learn. And generally, people get better as, as they go on. So three times 12, the maximum score would be 36. If you score lower than 18, you're likely to have a problem with your short-term verbal memory. Okay, so that's the test. And that tends to be related to the campus. And if you uh, tidy this up a little bit, we find that uh, hippocampal size is related to the risk at phase three. But then, as you saw, there's a most, more recent contribution as well. And the first time it becomes significant is at phase 11. So there's an initial um, relation to the risk and then the later one. And then there's also a direct effect of risk on performance of the Hopkins Global Learning Task. So you can actually model the causal relationship between how, you know, in terms of how the, the vascular risk that people have is reflected in um, brain structures and to what extent the change in brain structures affects the performance of particular tests. And this arrow presumably has something to do with how this, risks, this risk affects other bits of the brain that are also needed for the test. So just an example, an example of how you can tease this further apart. Right. The next important question is how uh, are there any characteristics that predict good mental performance? And do these protect from the effects of brain changes? If you think of uh, what happens during the lifetime, there are risk factors on the minus side if you want to, and there are protective factors, for example, high education or IQ, uh, certain drugs, particular diets, supposedly moderate alcohol consumption, but then also mental physical activities with rich social networks. So this is, this is the hypothesis, as it were. So there are, there are factors on the plus and the negative side. So let's focus on education. Um, this is education level in terms of highest and more qualifications, all levels, A levels, and so on. And this is the year of full-time education, as you would expect, the higher the achievement, the longer you've gone to school. But also, this also correlated with the actual um, IQ, in this case, a particular measure of IQ that's unlikely to change with age. And then if you go back to our uh, verbal learning test, you perform that task, that word learning task, the better, the higher your initial IQ is. But also there's this correlation with um, hippocampus. So the bigger the volume of the hippocampus relative to the brain, the better you are performing these tasks. And if you look at the correlation between IQ and hippocampus and the verbal learning task, you can see they have uh, certain correlations. And when you remove the other relatively other factor, it actually increases from the zero to the partial correlation, or in other type of words, if you just look at the contribution of those two uh, predictors, hippocampal size and IQ, um, if you just add them up, you get 10%. If you actually look how they interact with each other, it's almost 13%. In other words, um, the um, there seems to be an interaction between those two factors in the sense that if you have a small IQ, 
your, sorry, if you have a small hippocampus, a greater IQ is going to make a relatively bigger contribution to your performance. So IQ can actually be shown in uh, numerical terms to be a factor that protects you from uh, poor performance. And then finally, are there actually particular changes in uh, characteristics in the brain that protect you? IQ, of course, is very abstract. We don't know what it means. And uh, one, you recognize that? <laughs> one approach which uh, Anya thought about is that you, um, what you have to do is you have to look at people with a small hippocampus and then you compare the two groups, the one group that performs very well in this case on the verbal um, memory task and the other is the group who don't perform well. So they both have the same degree of hippocampal atrophy, so they both have the same degree of organic impairment if you want to, but then there's a well-performing group and a poorly performing group, and if you compare the white matter, the cabling as it were between the two groups, you find that the resilient group here has a much higher quality of white matter connections. In other words, um, a good, whiter, a, good, a good connectivity in the brain compensates to some extent for hippocampal atrophy. You're interested in what actually protects you, and that would be certainly one factor. And, you know, she thought of this uh, index, and that is the bigger the verbal memory score and the smaller the hippocampal volume, the greater is your resilience. So given a particular um, hippocampal volume, the guys with a higher memory score are more resilient and, and vice versa. So after this bit of maths, if you look at this, this uh, resilience index as it were, you find that um, the areas where people have high quality, so the green is just the skeleton, those is just to show where changes can occur, and the, the orangey and reds are the areas where there are significant relationships. So in other words, where the orange colors are, there's a significant positive relationship with resilience. Or, say again, if you have high quality white matter connections in those areas, um, you're more likely to perform well given a certain um, size of campus. And, you know, we always are a bit worried in case this comes about by confounders. So she excluded things like total gray matter density, stroke risk, alcohol, and you still have this relationship. You know, certain areas that are, have better quality white matter connections in the guys who have greater resilience, so that's quite nice. And then if you add the last one that we had shown before is related to performance, once you remove the effect of IQ, you have nothing left. So this is not the final proof, but it looks as if maybe the connectivity, the white matter connectivity of the brain is partially the reason why people have um, a higher IQ measure. And, and both of them together, obviously, will increase the chances to not present with memory problems in spite of um, already some developed uh, brain changes. And then the very last thing is that as you get older, um, your, the front of your brain becomes more active, and that's because you already start uh, needing to work harder to achieve the same thing. Um, I just put in an extra minute. Do you know the, the, um, that there's a game called Taboo, a family game? 
It's a bit like charade, but it's uh, not that you have to act it out, you talk. And you describe something, but you have to avoid certain words. Okay, so if you, if you let's say, have to get people to, to guess kangaroo, you must not mention hopping Australia and uh, you know, some other words that would obviously be connected. If you play this in a family context, anybody, anybody, anybody over 30 is going to do much worse than the younger members of the family. It's really quite entertaining and, and very gratifying for, for children. <laughs> <laughs> but that may be one sign that as you get older, your frontal lobes have to work harder. And that's actually not bad, uh, because if you look at uh, particular tasks, you know, the frontal lobes are more active as you get older, but if you look at specific diseases like Alzheimer's disease, and then you then divide people who are equally impaired, they're equally scoring in terms of their, their, um, uh, their, their dementia um, severity score, if you want to. And you can divide them into people who have uh, high levels of education, the ones with intermediate and the, the lowest education. You find that in order to present with the same degree of dementia, you have to have a much poorer um, brain function in the areas that are abnormal in dementia if you already have a high IQ. And then as you, you know, the, the sort of low, low education groups need much less of a brain change, and activity change, to have the same degree of dementia. And what you also see is that, particularly in this group, but also in that, the frontal lobes seem to be more active in, in, those, uh, you know, in those upper two groups. So it's uh, it almost as if the activity of the frontal lobe can compensate to some degree for the established brain damage that comes about by the, by the dementia. And that's maybe one of the reasons why if you activate your brain, if you get your frontal lobes to, to work hard, to some extent, up to a certain point, you can compensate. Okay, and of course it's not uh, my, my work and mainly um, using other people's uh, efforts <laughs> to construct these thoughts. Okay, thanks so much.